This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. Packed hospital emergency departments, long waiting times for GPs and disappearing country health services. National Cabinet's meeting today to discuss how to fix a health system in crisis. And one possible solution might be that other health workers join GPs at their practices to provide a one-stop shop for care. But as Angus Randall reports, it's really complex. Even those working in the sector don't agree on how to fix the system. Health Minister Mark Butler says Medicare is in the worst shape it's been in 40 years. And when National Cabinet gathers today, they're likely to hear one phrase that could form part of the solution, a blended healthcare model. Putting more different kinds of health professionals into GP clinics to help share the load with them. Peter Braden is the director of the health program at the Grattan Institute. He says a blended care model that would see other professionals, including nurses and physios at medical clinics, could put less pressure on GPs and make it easier to get basic help. If there were more different kinds of people in the clinic, some of those people could be empowered to help you with the simple things. The GP could uh, either refer you on to people to provide those sick notes or, in some cases, prescriptions, or you might be able to see some of those people directly. Every stakeholder in the healthcare system has its own idea for how a blended care model could work, and it's causing tensions. Danielle McMullen is the Vice President of the Australian Medical Association. So we see a model where patients have a patient-centred, GP-led but team-based model of care. For example, that then this funding so that GPs can hire more nurses, more dietitians, allied health staff to work within the practice and make sure that patients do have access to a variety of different healthcare professionals, but who are working closely and collaboratively with their usual GP. The Pharmacy Guild says the easiest way to take pressure off overworked GPs would be to give pharmacists the power to write some prescriptions. That's been swiftly rebuffed by the AMA. Prescribing without any coordination with the usual doctor fragments care and puts patients at risk. GPs are also against the suggestion. Dr Nicole Higgins is the president of the Royal Australian College of GPs. We have a shortage of pharmacists. We have a shortage of nurses. Shuffling them all around to be GPs doesn't work. Professor Trent Toomey is the president of the Pharmacy Guild of Australia, which represents pharmacy owners. He's pushing back ahead of today's National Cabinet meeting. What we're talking about, what the pharmacists of Australia are talking about, is patient access. And we're looking overseas to what Canadians can receive from Canadian pharmacies, what people in the UK can receive from pharmacies in the UK. And unfortunately, the range of services that Australians can receive is is much narrower. National Cabinet will hear from the Strengthening Medicare Task Force today, which will offer its vision for the future of healthcare. The task force includes the AMA and the RACGP. The Pharmacy Guild says it was not invited. Angus Randall there. Australia's Deputy Prime Minister says it'll be a huge moment in our country's history when the detailed plans for building nuclear-powered submarines with the US and the UK are revealed soon. Richard Miles made the comments after talks between the Foreign and Defence Ministers of the UK and Australia in Portsmouth overnight. It's expected Prime Minister Anthony Albanese will travel to Washington next month to meet with the US President and the UK Prime Minister to announce the decision. Europe correspondent Steve Kinane reports. 
The seaside city of Portsmouth in southern England was the backdrop for the latest Auckland talks involving the defence and foreign ministers from the UK and Australia. This port city is the home to one of the UK's naval bases, and how Australia will acquire its planned fleet of nuclear submarines was on the agenda at the ministerial talks. Deputy Prime Minister Richard Miles said the close relationship between the countries would help deliver the subs that Australia needs. This is a huge moment in our country's history. This will change Australia's international personality. It will dramatically build our capability and with that it will build our sovereignty. Uh, but the significance of um, Britain and uh, America working together to help us uh, have that technology is, is one which in international terms is also highly significant. The Deputy Prime Minister is keeping quiet on how those submarines will be built. UK Defence Secretary Ben Wallace has previously said it will be a truly collaborative project. The ABC asked him whether this would mean that a whole new class of submarines would be built common to all three nations. Well, I think you'll have to wait for the Australian Cabinet to make its final decision on, on their proposals. Uh, and then I think then, you know, it, it is for Australia to reveal uh, what options it, it settled for. Um, whatever the options are, and I, there are a range of them, you know, it is a joint endeavour, whether that is the sharing of technology and the understanding of how to do it, the sharing of, of the build or the sharing of the design. So whatever option is chosen by Australia, it will be collaborative and that statement stands. As part of the talks, all four ministers highlighted the importance of working together to ensure that the Indo-Pacific region was open, stable and prosperous and one which respected international law. Following the meeting, Foreign Minister Penny Wong said that this was a strong reason why Australia needed nuclear submarines. Australia uh, seeks a submarine capability uh, and we are uh, deeply uh, appreciative of the collaboration which is enabling that to occur because we want to contribute to the sort of region we want. That is why we seek it. We seek a submarine capability that is part of, along with other elements of national power, but centrally, in order to contribute to a region that is stable, prosperous, peaceful, and in which sovereignty is respected. That plan for how the submarine fleet will be delivered is likely to be revealed next month. This is Steve Canaan in Portsmouth for AM. Russian President Vladimir Putin's again threatened to unleash an arsenal against the West, warning those who underestimate his country do so at their peril. In a fiery speech marking a World War II victory, he's falsely claimed that history is repeating with his country under threat from a new wave of Nazism. And he's lashed out at Germany for sending tanks to Ukraine. Europe correspondent Nick Dole reports. Uh, uh. In the eastern Ukrainian city of Kramatorsk, a man lies bleeding in the snow. His leg is badly injured following a Russian missile attack. There's flaming rubble nearby. Just around the corner, paramedics tighten a tourniquet on a woman's leg to stop her bleeding out. They load her into the back of an ambulance. Local authorities say a Russian Iskander missile hit an apartment building. Three people were killed and at least 18 were injured. Millions of people in Ukraine have experienced the horrors of war firsthand. But in Russia, some see the invasion as a necessary or even glorious crusade. Soldiers have paraded through the streets of Volgograd, formerly known as Stalingrad, marking the 80th anniversary of the battle, which the Soviets won against the Nazis. 
One resident, Irina Zolotarova, says she believes her country faces a similar struggle. I think we will win now too, she says, no matter what difficulties our country is facing, so they don't attack us. Justice will prevail. Another resident, Zaya, who's in her 80s, has a different opinion about what's happening in Ukraine. I'm very sorry about the mothers, wives, children that are crying there, she says. And for what? Who does that? Let's stop. We are adults. Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. In a defiant speech marking the anniversary, the president's invoked history to justify his war. Now, unfortunately, we see the ideology of Nazism in its modern form once again directly threatens the security of our country, he said. It's incredible, it's incredible, but it's a fact. We are once again being threatened with German leopard tanks with crosses on them. He's referring to the Leopard 2 tanks Germany has agreed to send to Ukraine. He says the West shouldn't underestimate his determination or his willingness to use his entire arsenal. Those who are betting they'll defeat Russia on the battlefield clearly don't understand that modern war with Russia will be quite different for them, he says. We don't send our tanks to their borders, but we have the means to respond and it won't end with the use of armoured vehicles. In Kyiv, European leaders have started arriving ahead of a summit where President Volodymyr Zelensky is hoping to extract more military support and tougher sanctions against Russia. He's warning there could be a renewed assault on the horizon. The EU's announced a centre will be set up in The Hague to investigate Russian aggression in Ukraine, and EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen says there'll be more help to come. Our presence in Kyiv today gives a very clear signal. The whole of the European Union is in this with Ukraine for the long haul. A sense of resolve that Vladimir Putin had hoped to have broken almost one year on. Europe correspondent Nick Dahl. During the past week, India's Adani Group has lost a staggering $100 billion in market value, raising concerns about the flow-on effects to the country's wider financial system. The huge losses follow the publication of a report by a US investment firm accusing Adani of fraud. The company denies the claims, but the fallouts prompted it to call off a share sale. South Asia correspondent Avani Dias reports from New Delhi. An uncontrollable sitting of parliament in New Delhi as opposition MPs shout slogans against the Adani Group, one of India's largest companies that's facing a dramatic fall from the top. Adani has lost $100 billion in the last week after a small US investment firm, Hindenburg, released a scathing report accusing the company of brazen accounting fraud, stock manipulation and money laundering. The company has rejected the claims and founder Gautam Adani tried to calm investors in an address on Thursday. For me, the interest of my investor is paramount and everything is secondary. 
Mr. Adani dropped out of university to build his company from scratch. Now it controls ports, mines, media and more in India. And in the last decade, his company managed to secure one of the world's biggest international deals, the Carmichael coal mine in Queensland. Analyst Tim Buckley has been researching the company for more than a decade. It is staggering, uh, unprecedented. One of the key aspects of the Hindenburg research is the fact that the regulators in India have turned a blind eye or been unable to answer and evaluate a lot of allegations. India and Australia's market regulators have now announced reviews into these allegations. The tentacles of the Adani group go everywhere. They are literally in almost every industry in India. And it is a blow to the integrity of the financial system in India. So I do think this will have economic implications. Senior Indian Minister Ashwini Vaishnor has told Bloomberg the country can handle the fallout from Adani's losses. I think whatever blip is there on the stock market is not going to affect the overall economy. I'm very sure of that. Gautam Adani was the face of success in modern India's soaring economy. His company calls these allegations an attack on the country's growth story and ambition. While experts are split, Mr Adani is confident his company can come back from this. Your faith and belief in the company, its business and its management has been extremely reassuring and humbling for all, all of us. Thank you again for your trust in us. This is Avani Dias in New Delhi, reporting for AM. Indigenous health groups say they're pleased an urgent report into alcohol laws in Central Australia has recommended the return of blanket grog bans in town camps and remote communities until individual alcohol management plans are developed by communities. They say alcohol is a contributing factor to high rates of crime and violence in the region and limiting supply will help keep people safe. In the meantime, senior custodians in Alice Springs are calling for unity and respect in what's an incredibly challenging time for the community. Oliver Gordon reports. It's now been more than a week since Indigenous health boss Donna Archie went public with her story of being broken into. I was pretty scared and uh, frightened. Since then, the Prime Minister has visited town, thousands of residents have attended a community meeting and an urgent report into alcohol laws in Alice Springs has been commissioned. The report isn't yet public, but it's understood it recommends a return to blanket grog bans to reduce the supply of alcohol in Alice Springs and surrounding remote communities. Donna Archie, the chief executive of Alice Springs Indigenous Controlled Health Body Congress, welcomes that. If that is the case, we will be very supportive. She says since temporary bans limiting the sale of alcohol came into place last week, violence and crime have reduced. The number of, of incidents, you know, requiring the um, attendance by the police have fell by almost a half from around 200 to 120 a day. The ABC understands the report into alcohol laws also recommends extra funding to help tackle the underlying causes of crime in Alice Springs. Donna Archie says that funding is as important as any alcohol measure. Things like intergenerational trauma, poverty, addressing poor educational outcomes, addressing overcrowding, dealing with um, racial discrimination, making sure that we've got uh, evidence-based early childhood programs. Unless we get those things fixed and improvements in those areas, 
we need to have alcohol restrictions at the same time. Whilst the report has been handed to the government, it could be up to a week before a decision is made on whether the bans are reinstated in central Australia. Meanwhile, tensions in the outback town remain high. Central Arundel woman Elaine Peckham says it's starting to take a toll. I'm devastated. Part of the strong grandmothers of the Central Desert Group, the senior custodian says it's important elders like her have a seat at the table when it comes to finding solutions. Don't make decisions on our behalf. So look what's happened now. In a challenging time for the town that's at risk of becoming more divided than it already is, she's calling for residents to come together. Yes, I hope they do come come together for the sake of our people in this town that are still here today, still proud of themselves and will never give up. Like I say, never, ever give up hope. Elaine Peckham from the Strong Grandmothers of the Central Desert Group, ending Oliver Gordon's report. While the emergency flood warnings from heavy rain on the east coast have significantly eased, residents in a remote outback town in New South Wales are still grappling with a crisis. In Ivanhoe, in the state's far west, large parts of properties remain underwater and roads connecting towns are still closed, as Romy Stevens reports. It's been a long 12 months for grazier Clive Linnett. His homestead is dry, but his property has been inundated by flood water since this time last year. We look out our front door and we've, we've got, a, got a lake um, of about 600 acres, two or three k's north of us. We've got a lake right at the back of our homestead here, which is another five to 600 acres, and all we see is water and hearing frogs day and night. He can only access a fraction of his land, which spans tens of thousands of acres at Ivanhoe. We've got 42,000 acres, and we've got actually 40,000 acres underwater or cut off. We'd probably have, according to the satellite photos, about 100 k's of fencing, which would have water through them. Clive Linnett's property is at the tail end of the Willandra Creek, which connects to the Lachlan River. He says flood water that went through places like Forbes last year has flowed into the Ivanhoe region and doesn't have anywhere to drain. We had a flood and then we had all this rain on top of it that's created a lot of hardship, put it that way. Most of the main roads connecting Ivanhoe to places further south, like Balranald and Bulligal, remain closed. That's making it difficult for residents like Jan Bunyan to access services. Well, it's a long trip. It's down to Balranald and uh, over to Hay and then on to Griffith. We only go when we absolutely have to. Very long trip. We were more or less marooned here. We did walk out over it on boards once, or twice I think it was. Um, a bit scary, but then the banks just got wider and wider. It's something like 40 foot wide now and 8 foot deep. While the water is slowly subsiding, they're turning their attention to recovery with thousands of sheep feared dead. The losses are are very high, so much so we don't want to admit it to ourselves, I think. There's probably three to 4,000 we've lost. Road closures around Ivanhoe have also stopped people travelling through town. Wendy Aves, who owns the local service station and caravan park, says there's no one around. It's just dead. <laughs> Not real good. Most locals are getting groceries and supplies from Wendy Aves' service station, but deliveries have been reduced to once a week. The truck carting supplies has doubled its travel time to Ivanhoe, trying to work around road closures. And we're really lucky that we've got like a good taxi truck that's wanting to come around that way for us, come through all the water and that for us. 
Many residents won't get relief until March, when floods are expected to ease. But for now, Wendy Aves says spirits remain high. Well, you can't go anywhere. It's a bit down and depressing, but we've got each other out here. We're right. Ivanhoe's service station and caravan park owner Wendy Aves, Romy Stevens, reporting there. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. A report's recommended an alcohol ban in Alice Springs be urgently extended as the community grapples with how to stop a worrying crime wave. After a tense week in the town, today we speak to an ABC reporter based there. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.